0: So we are looking at Genesis chapter 29. I realize that this is out of order chronologically, because last week we covered the Passover. So this takes place way before the Passover, hundreds of years before the Passover. But it actually is connected to the story of Moses, because it's through this story that you figure out where David and Moses and Jesus and all these important Old Testament characters come from. And it's quite an interesting story. It's in Genesis chapter 29. Uh, you remember Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we pick up this story after Isaac, in his old age, near the end of his life, uh, was going to give a blessing to his son Esau, who was the older son um, and Jacob or sorry Isaac wants to give him the blessing, yet isaac 's wife Rebecca, prefers the younger son, and so she cooks up this plan, and the younger son, Jacob goes along with it by which they will trick the father with his bad eyesight um, and putting on sort of a goat skin anyway it 's a, it's a strange story too, but basically they 're able to trick the father, and the father gives the blessing. you may think well and to, to the younger son which is not what should have happened, um, humanly speaking, or in that cultural um, situation. And then, uh, it's very interesting because you would think, well, big deal. I mean, he put his hands on him and he said some words. Why can't he undo that? It seems that he can't undo it because it seems that the, the blessing is more like a prophecy that's been laid down, and it seems that it can't be undone. And we don't know all, you know, sometimes the Old Testament doesn't, answer the questions that we have and we have to deal with what we have in the text but anyway all that to be said when Esau finds out that his brother his younger brother has stolen the blessing from him Jacob has to go on the run because Esau wants to kill him so Jacob goes on the run in chapter 28 right before this he can find Jacob's out you know out in the desert out in the wilderness there's nowhere really for him to go He's sleeping basically out in the open, and he has this dream, this vision of this ladder with angels going up and down it. And God speaks this promise to him and says to him that he is going to be the father of many descendants, too numerous to name, uh, to number. And the first time actually ever in the Old Testament God says this to a particular person, God says, I will be with you says that to Jacob after he's stolen the blessing from his brother and is fleeing for his life. And that gets us to chapter 29, where we pick up the story. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. Now, why is he asking about this guy? Well, because this guy is his uncle. And his mother, when she sent him off, told him to go look this guy up and see if he could take a wife from this family. Okay, So that's why he's asking about that guy in particular. Uh, So so the shepherds say, we know him. We know this guy. We know Laban. And so Jacob says to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him. That means Jacob stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, which literally means cow. Cow. And the name of the younger was Rachel, which means you. Like E-W-E. I don't know how you pronounce it, where you're from but we say you. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, sorry, I missed. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Yeah, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Not a great Valentine's Day passage. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. After seven years, he's a little more blunt to the point, isn't he? So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. That means he went and had sex with her, okay? In case you wondered. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Yeah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you with you for Rachel? why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. That means the marriage week and all this festival that was going on with regard to the marriage. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. That is Leah's Wedding festival week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated or unloved, some translations say, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. three sons therefore his name was called Levi and she conceived again and bore a son and said this time I will praise the Lord therefore she called his name Judah then she ceased bearing let's pray together Lord we thank you for this story and we pray that you'd help us to understand your grace for the worst of us and for the unloved and unlovely. And we pray that it would melt our hearts, encourage us, make us bold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a great story. I love this story. It's, um, you know, it's a good story for right after Valentine's. I don't know if everybody feels the same on Valentine's. Some people really enjoy Valentine's, maybe one year, and then the next year they don't. Like, this is the reality. Whenever you live in community with people, you have to understand that while some are rejoicing, some are not. I, I always bring this out whenever I do a wedding. You know, any time you do a wedding as a pastor, you need to know that for some people, it's the greatest day of their life, and they're so excited to be there. For other people, they can't stand having to sit through that. Because it brings out unfulfilled longings. There's people always there who are excited about marriage. Then there's people there who wish they could be married and aren't. There's people there that are married and wish they weren't. There's people in every level. And it's always that way. In a group this size, it's that way. So we talk about this story. And there's something in it really for everybody. What is God's grace like? Who does it come to? It's, it's really quite astonishing. And again, I think one of the reasons that so many Christians seem so kind of blasé about the love of God is because they don't recognize how astonishing it is that the God of the universe loves the way he does. We just take it for granted. But this is a story that for me, it helps me remember who I am. And thus it helps me remember who God is. John Calvin actually said one time that there's two great things to know. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of man. And they're inextricably linked. In other words, it's it's through both knowing who you are that you come to know something about God. And knowing who God is, you come to learn things about yourself that you might not have realized. Let's see how that comes out in this passage, in this story. First point to make is that God's grace comes to the worst. Where do I get that? Well, I get that in really chapter 28, which I didn't read. So I have to, I have to remind you again what this is. Jacob is the deceiver. It's, it's literally who he is. He's the deceiver. He's a scoundrel. He has taken advantage of his brother and he's sinned against him, and he's been on the run. And yet, in the midst of that, God's promise comes to him. Now, if you remember what we've been talking about this whole semester, there's a promise way back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where after Adam and Eve rebel against God, God says to Eve that, I will put enmity between you, uh, your seed, and the seed of the serpent. And he says uh, in this promise to Adam and Eve, he says to them that I will bring the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So even in the midst of their sin, Adam and Eve hear the first preaching of the gospel. The first promise of the gospel where God says, I will not allow the wreck that sin has made of my world, I will not allow that to stand. I will take matters into my own hands. I will bring about from you, Eve, even though sin came into the world through you, so salvation is going to come through you. Even though you don't deserve it, I will honor you in that way, and through you will come the Messiah, who will crush the head of the serpent and make things, all things, new and right again. Now, as the Bible progresses, you find, well, that Eve has several children, and then they have several children. And so, as you follow this trail, you find eventually there's one particular guy, Abraham, and God says to him, It's through your line, Abraham, that all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Okay? And now we find through Abraham's son, Isaac, then Isaac has two sons, and it's through Jacob, not Esau that the seed line of the Messiah will come. Now, this is astonishing because Jacob is the bad guy. But God says to him, you're the one. Even while he's deceived his brother, taken the blessing, and then he's running for his life, he's off all by himself, and God comes to him out of the blue, so to speak, except I guess it was dark, so out of the black, and he comes to him in the middle of the night and says, I'm going to be with you. I will be with you. The first time any human being hears those words from the mouth of God is Jacob, the deceiver, the scoundrel. Jacob hears these words. So grace comes to the worst. And there's this great irony in this passage that Jacob, the deceiver, ends up being bested at his own game. He himself gets deceived. But before we get into that story... And the sort of poetic justice of that, you need to just sit in this for a minute. Grace comes to the worst guy around. Of all the people around in this sort of family tree, he's the bad guy. He's not looking for God, he's not out sort of having sort of a wilderness time to get alone and get with God. No, he's running for his life. And God comes to him and says, I will be with you, I will protect you, I will bring you back to the land and I will make from you innumerable descendants. In other words, the promise made to Abraham will run through your family tree, Jacob, right? It must have cut Jacob to the heart when later in the story, after he wakes up and sees, lo, it was Leah. You love that, I love that. And then Laban says to him, hey, I don't know what you do in your country, but in our country, we don't marry off the younger daughter until the older daughter's been married. And it must have cut Jacob to the heart because do you see the irony in that? Jacob, the younger brother, has stolen the blessing from the older brother And then he complains to Laban that he's been deceived. The deceiver, whose name means deceiver, is complaining that he's been deceived. And Laban says, well, our custom is the older daughter goes first in marriage. So that's what's going to happen. And it must have cut him to the heart. He, uh, He knows he has not acted honorably. But nonetheless, the promise comes to him. But God's grace doesn't just come to the worst. It often comes, like we see in this story, through longing, disappointment, sin, and deceit. Which is to say, grace comes through real life. Grace doesn't generally come to you in sort of the rarefied atmosphere of mountaintops. I know a lot of people think that mountaintops are the best place to find God. That actually was a characteristic of paganism in the ancient world. Usually they set... Uh, pay, you know altars to Baal and whatnot. Do you remember where they put them? on the high places. They always talk about the high places. That's where you meet pagan gods. Hmm. But we seem to have this idea that if you want to be with God, you go have sort of a mountaintop experience, and then you stay there, even though, of course, the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter said, we should just build some a little campsite here and just stay here forever. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way of the kingdom or the way of the gospel. But we seem to think that. But this is a great story to sort of break us out of that sort of fairy tale, romanticized vision that we try to squeeze Christianity into. Because this is a story about how God's grace comes through the messy stuff. This is a mess. Everything's a mess. Nothing really works great. Even though Jacob eventually gets Rachel to be his wife, the one he wanted, He's also got Leah, and he's got a mess because the two wives hate each other. I mean, they were sisters already, so it probably wasn't going to be a good situation. But then one of them's beautiful and the other one's not, and it's a mess. And yet, in spite of that, grace comes. It comes first through longing. We love this. Jacob is smitten with Rachel, and God uses that to move forward his plan, Don't think that God's plan only works when you kill your longings. The Bible never says that. The Bible actually teaches in 1 Timothy 4 that it's a doctrine of demons to to teach people to abstain from marriage and certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And I don't know where all these Christian teachers get the idea that the more holy you are, the more spiritual you are, the more miserable you'll be, and you'll give up liking anything at all. And that the goal of Christianity is just not to care about anything at all. That's Buddhism. It's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. God uses longings. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And yet made it impossible for him to know the beginning from the end. So it's the idea that God has given you a frustrating desire. And he uses that to bring about his purposes and his plans. So he uses Jacob's longings. He'll stay there, and he'll work for seven years, and the seven years will be as a few days' labor. Now, there's a little irony in that, because when his mother, Rebecca sent him away a couple chapters earlier, she told him, don't be gone long. Come back to me in a few days. Part of the sadness for Rebecca, Jacob's mother in all this, is he never comes back to her. She never sees him again. He stays there so long, and she dies before he can come back. So he stays there for seven years for Rachel, and yet it seems to him like it's just a few days. He loves her. And the Bible is not ashamed or embarrassed to say that he's crazy about her. It doesn't say that that's a bad thing. So God uses longing, but he also uses deceit. Laban tricks him. He's very crafty in how he does it. He doesn't actually promise Rachel by name. He just says, Her. And he leaves it ambiguous. Now, of course, Jacob doesn't pick up on that because he thinks he knows who they're talking about. And I know that Laban knew who they were talking about, but he he doesn't actually promise Rachel to her, to him. He doesn't. And then eventually he says, Look, my hands are clean, you know, this is how we do it. No, he deceived him. Don't try to justify it. The Bible actually records. Deception and lies. And not only that, but God uses them to bring his plan further along. Deceit. Deceit. And sin. There's no getting around it. Laban sinned against Jacob. And it seems that God, who in chapter 28, has made this great promise to Jacob that I will be with you. And I will protect you and I will watch over you and I will bring you back to your land. And that bring you back to your land is to be understood after you go to Laban's family and get a wife, then I'll bring you back. So it seems that God is saying, I'm going to be with you in this whole affair of you finding a wife. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to make sure it all works out. And then I'm going to bring you back to your land. And now Jacob wakes up and lo, behold, it was Leah. He's been sinned against, and it seems that God has abandoned Jacob, but God is at work. God is at work, because it's actually through Leah, Rachel, and their two servants that God will bring the 12 sons that are beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Have you heard of the 12 tribes of Israel? Eventually, Jacob's name is going to change after he wrestles with God and God puts his hip out of joint and he's going to change his name from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, which means one who has wrestled with God or one who has overcome or struggled. There's different ways of thinking about that. So Jacob is going to have his name changed to Israel. And then these 12 sons that are going to come through Rachel, Leah, and their two servants are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. God is at work. Leah is not plan B. God is at work. He's beginning to keep the promise he made to Jacob back in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. God says this to him right after he promises that I will be with you and I will watch over you. He says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, Jacob. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And Leah is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. Even though it seems like God has abandoned Jacob, God is actually powerfully at work bringing about the fulfillment of this promise, not in the way that Jacob wanted, but bringing it about nonetheless. And eventually, all 12 sons will be born to Jacob. And then eventually, they'll have children. And eventually, Jacob will take his family down to Egypt. There'll be 70 of them then. So the promise is picking up steam 400 years later, when Moses is raised up to lead Israel out of Egypt, the 70 have become a great nation. But they're still not covering the earth like God had promised to Abraham. For that is going to require another son to come, namely Jesus himself. Because it's through Leah will come King David, will come Moses. He's He's from the line of Levi, one of Leah's sons. It's through Leah that will come Jesus himself. And it's through Jesus and faith in Jesus that the true children of Abraham will be reckoned. And eventually, it's through Jesus that we'll find this fulfillment of descendants too numerous to count. The book of Revelation talks about a great multitude that no one could number, made up of people from every race, tribe, and tongue. But the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise comes through Leah, through sin, through deceit. But God is still at work. So we have to to ask ourselves this question. Can God work in your disappointment? Can God work even in the ways that you've been sinned against? And you might say, I can't, I can't imagine that. Where I sit right now, I feel this so powerfully and so painfully, I can't imagine that God could work through this. What do you think Leah felt? If you had asked Leah... Can God work? If you'd ask Jacob, can God work through disappointment? If you ask the Bible, you have to realize God works through disappointment. God's plan proceeds even through sin. Sometimes I think our limited imaginations feed our unbelief. It is a shame how little people value the imagination and the importance of it in living the Christian life. I think it's one of the great tragedies of legalism, that we just want people to tell us exactly what to do. And not only you know, is that making laws where God hasn't made laws, which is a way of making yourself God, so that's a problem, but there's a more subtle danger, which is that you, your, your imagination just sort of withers and dies. Because you never, you never imagine what does heroic faithfulness to God look like in this disappointment that I'm sitting in the middle of right now. What does it look like for me to imagine that even if I can't imagine how God could bring life out of this death, yet still God's ways are higher than my ways. And I need to understand that even my imagination can't even begin to grasp the way God can bring his plans to fruition. Yeah? Can God be at work in your disappointment and even in the ways you've been sinned against? And it shouldn't, you know, surprise us because God's plan has always proceeded through pain and sin. Again, it's through Leah and her pain, Jacob and his disappointment and his being sinned against, that the Lord keeps his promise to bring the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. It's through her son, Judah, that King David comes and eventually Jesus comes. It's through her son, Levi, that Moses will come. Jake, God sorry, is going to use unloved Leah to bring about salvation for the world. Because it's through Leah's descendants that Jesus will be born one day. And so we see that ultimately, the Lord's promised plan prevails in spite of Laban's sin and his deceit, in spite of Jacob's disappointment, in spite of unloved Leah, in spite of all that. God's promised plan prevails and this shouldn't surprise us because God's promised plan prevails even through the sin of sending the innocent Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the cross. Do you understand that it's through lying and deception that Jesus is crucified? Everybody that testifies at his trial perjures themselves. Pilate knows that he's innocent, says as much, and still consents to have him put to death. Nobody did what was right in the crucifixion of Jesus. It was a travesty of justice. But it was God's plan for bringing salvation to the world through a travesty of justice. Do you understand this? It's, it's said really well in Acts chapter 2 verse 22 and 23. Peter on the day of Pentecost stands up and says this fellow israelites listen to this jesus of nazareth was a man accredited by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did among you through him as you yourselves know this man was handed over to you by god's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross do you see how those two things go together in the Bible's conception of reality? Now, I can't explain to you how it can be God's determined plan and also how the people can be free moral agents who are described as wicked. But there it is. Through the wicked actions of sinful men, Jesus was put to death. But it was just as God had planned. And that's the reality. So if you, if you struggle to believe that God's plan can move forward through pain and through sin, how do you make sense of the cross? It wasn't God making the best of a bad situation. Oh my gosh, things have kind of fallen apart. I thought everybody was going to really like Jesus. I mean, he's a great guy. Who wouldn't like him? You know? He had the crowds with him even for a while. You know, so he made some, some missteps, and he sort of told people he needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that kind of freaked people out. So he lost the crowd. But then he kind of had him again. Oh, then He kept saying all this weird stuff and losing him again. But then, you know, he's marching into Jerusalem on this donkey, and the crowds are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then something happened, and seven days later, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him, the same people but I know what I can do. I'll sort of, I'll, I'll sort of try to you know, make lemonade out of these lemons You know, that have sort of happened. No, no, that's not the picture of the gospel. The cross is not God making the best out of a bad situation. It's not his plan B. It's his determined plan from before the foundation of the world to bring salvation to the world through a travesty of justice. And then there's the story of Leah, the human story of Leah. Because God's grace doesn't just come to the worst, it doesn't just come through deceit and sin, not only through Leah, but even through Jesus himself and the cross. But God's grace comes to the unloved and the unlovely. You can't lose sight of the very real human drama here in this story and see the Lord's compassion for Leah. It's actually very helpful sometimes to go through Bible stories like this and try to put yourselves in the position of each of the major characters in the story, and to think about what would it feel like for Leah? What would it feel like for Jacob? What would it feel like for Rachel? Maybe there's a place where you might identify with one of these characters. They might be in the place where you are. Maybe where you're sitting tonight, you're feeling very powerfully, I've really screwed up my life. (laughs) And you need to hear that there's good news tonight that God's grace comes to the worst. It came to Jacob. But maybe you're sitting here saying, you know, I've really tried hard to honor God, and I've just suffered disappointment after disappointment. No one loves me. Nobody cares for me. It was made really evident yesterday, right? And I'm feeling it very powerfully right now. And you need to know that God's grace comes to those who are considered unlovely and unlovable. God does not think that Leah is ugly and in fact he chooses her to bless the whole world. Do you see the Lord's compassion for Leah? Leah does not feel like a princess but she is. She's in the line of royalty. King Jesus is going to be born through her and God is showing that he's the one who doesn't require us to be beautiful, to be loved. In fact, just the opposite, it's his love that makes us truly beautiful. And that's what moves me so much about this story, because this is my story. I don't know about your experience, but I identify much more with Leah than with Rachel. I, I mean, I, I, my story is always picked last. Even, even to the point where I can think back to fifth and sixth grade, and the kids who sort of made the teams at kickball every day, getting me to do the most ridiculous things, holding out this carrot, this promise. You can be on our team this time, and so go embarrass yourself in this way or that way. And I would fall for it every day, and they would come up with some reason why, no, we're not going to let you be on our team this week, but tomorrow we'll try again, right? Loneliness, disappointment, feeling like an outcast all the time, and I need to know that God loves me that kind of person, right? He loves Leah, right? The, tr- the, tr- the trouble and the trick, I guess, of of, being, of having that as your story is the struggle to not let it define you. Dan Allender at one point talks about the story war. Who has the ability to narrate your story and to say what it means? And there's a lot of people that try to. Well, you try to narrate your own story, and say, well, this happened, therefore that means this. And your parents will try and tell one story about you, and your teachers, and your employers, and your friends. But God's story says this, that I don't look on man the way the world looks on man. I don't think that Leah is ugly at all. (laughs) But it takes a mighty work of God to break through the self-protection that always being the overlooked, and the unloved can build. But there's good news here. God is up to the task. I love the way we see the way grace gets the heart of Leah. Do you, un- do you understand what's going on here? God is the one who can take hearts of stone no matter how much you've protected yourself from disappointment so that you wouldn't have to face it. I mean, basically, when you're, when you're getting to know somebody, just follow the trail of pain in their life and it'll lead you to the decisions they've made and the ways they've tried to protect themselves to say, I'm never going to let myself be in a position where I can be rejected or taken advantage of like that again. I've heard Tim Keller say it once that if you pull up somebody's idols by the roots, you'll find their fears clinging to the roots. And it's very true. And it has a lot to do with their story. But look at this. Jesus is the one who can melt hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Jesus, the radiantly beautiful one, became ugly so that we would never have to stand before God in our own filthy rags. But we could stand robed in his beauty before the Father. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus became so disfigured at the cross Man were repulsed repulsed by him, that they couldn't look upon him. His appearance was so disfigured. Jesus became ugly, literally, so that everything that is about you and is about me that would want to make God run away screaming could be dealt with and done away with. Do you know that? If you're sitting here tonight and you're wondering, what does Jesus think about me? If you fled to Jesus, then Jesus sees you as beautiful, not just as good. It's it's nice to be considered good, but beauty is an important part of what we get in the gospel. Jesus did what he came to do. He took on the ugliness of sin and gives us his beauty, a beauty that can never be taken away from us. And because of this, we can have hope that grace doesn't just come to the beautiful people. That's one thing to say that. It's another thing to believe that. It's hard to believe. And it was hard for Leah to believe, too. Look at this story. She gets married. Now, in her sort of world, she probably has given up hope that she's going to be married, especially when Jacob says, I'm willing to work for seven years, which was more than would have been expected. He was expected to pay a bride price for his wife. Normally it would be his family that paid for it but you see he's already sort of cut off from his family because of his sin. So he's on his own. He's got to work. But 7 years is more than anybody would have asked. As a matter of fact later in Deuteronomy, they're going to limit the bride price to 50 shekels. 7 years wages is a lot more than 50 shekels. So imagine imagine Leah hearing this guy is willing to work 7 years for my younger sister. What hope does she have? But then, lo and behold, she gets married, which probably appears to her like great grace, even though there's got to be a bitter root in the middle of it because she had to deceive and be part of this deception, right? And you may think, well, how how did that happen? Well, listen, there's no electricity. It's dark. They wear veils all the way through the wedding ceremony, and then, you know, He probably had too much to drink. Doesn't say that, but that sort of went along with weddings. Um, However, it happened. And so Leah is there, but she's married, but still it doesn't satisfy. And she produces sons, which, like it or not, in this culture, that's what women aspired to. If you could produce sons, that was seen as success, And, you know, I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I think it's oppressive in a lot of ways, right? But that was the reality. And she does it. She does it. Four times. But look at the names that she gives these kids. And in those names, you hear her heartache, right? The first son, she names basically a way that says, you know, maybe now my husband will love me. (laughs) Like, what a name. to Name your kid, you know. Hey, you know, what if Wendy and I, had if she said, you know, well, I really like the name Cooper. Well, no, no, I really like, maybe my husband will love me now. (laughs) Like, you know, hopefully I would have gotten the message, you know. And then you have another child, and it's, you know, the Lord has seen my heartache. That's a good name. That's got, you know, catchy, you know. I don't know what, what the short nickname version of that is. You know, ache, achy, I don't know. And then, you know, another one, right? And finally, finally, you get to Judah. What does Judah mean? Judah means this time I will praise the Lord. But it takes three sons, which she thinks are going to secure the love of her husband, before she finally gets it. Maybe the love of my husband is not the most important thing that I need. Wait a second. The Lord has given me four sons. Maybe this time I'll praise him for the blessings he's given me rather than always be looking at the things he seems to be withholding that I think I have to have. And you know what's so tragic? In the very next chapter, chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel, the beautiful one, goes to Jacob. And do you know what she says? After Leah has four sons... Rachel says to Jacob, give me sons or I will die. But isn't that what Leah was saying? (laughs) Give me the love of my husband or I will die. But eventually God breaks through her heart, but it takes four sons to do it. And still Rachel's in that place. Give me sons or I will die. When she finally gets it though, It changes things. She doesn't need the love of her husband. Here's the way the the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. And I love this this little paragraph. Now, when Leah knew that God loved her in her heart, suddenly it didn't matter anymore whether her husband loved her the best or if she was the prettiest. Someone had chosen. Someone did love her with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Love. So when Leah had a baby boy this time, she called him Judah, which means this time I will praise the Lord. And that's just what she did. Listen, don't minimize the pain of being left out and overlooked, but don't project this onto God because he doesn't love that way. God loves the worst and he loves the unlovely. And it's a beautiful thing. Last week, you know, um, I told you that Amelia, our little girl, she's six and a half, most of you guys know her, right? Our little sweet princess, we call her all the time. Last week, uh, she had the flu and strep throat together. So what'd she have? 104.8 temperature. She was a miserable little girl. Miserable little girl. And she's so pitiful. Little kids are so pitiful. And she's particularly pitiful because she's only 35 pounds, right? She's just tiny. Little, poor little girl, Yeah. So she's, you know, suffering all week long. She's just sort of curled up in a ball on the couch. She's in the same jammies for days and days. And, and just sort of out of the blue, she says to Wendy and I, she goes, Daddy, I don't feel like a princess anymore. I'm like, what? What do you mean? I've failed as a father. <laughs> you know? I go, and I even asked her tonight at dinner, I said, like, Now, Amelia, when you told us that, what did, what did you mean by that? And she says, I didn't feel shiny and clean, and I needed a bath. (laughs) So we gave her a bath, okay? But here's the thing. Like, she doesn't know yet at six and a half that she's vocalized a longing that no bath can deal with. She doesn't feel like a princess anymore. But don't you know? That Jesus sees her as a princess. And Jesus is making her a princess. Leah doesn't feel like a princess. But she is. And ultimately, the prince of princes is going to be born from her. The Lord does unbelievable things through deceivers and the unlovable. So may you be encouraged. May may you also have your vision and your imagination stirred because who knows what God can do through you? Don't think that he can't use you because you're the worst or you're unlovable. Don't you dare. Jesus came from Leah, the unloved, and Jacob, the deceiver. So there's hope. Let's pray.